Uh, my name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer. Uh, this morning we are starting a new series, and it's a series on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, in each of your worship folders, you should have received an insert. On one side is the passage that we'll be reading today, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, and on the other side is the outline uh, for this morning. Uh it's a new series. We're going to be taking the next 12 weeks and looking at this book. Uh, and we're going to use the book really to kind of flesh out the Ten Commandments. So each week we're sort of we're going to be taking a commandment starting next week, 1 through 10, uh, and using parts of the book of Deuteronomy to kind of flesh that out. Uh, so this morning it's, it's part of my job to kind of intro uh, the series that we're going to be looking at and try and lay out for you some of the guiding principles, I suppose, that we want you to kind of take with you through this. Uh, and, and let me just say from the outset, uh, this is very scary. Um, I'm not typically one of the, you know, one of these hellfire brimstone kind of guys. I usually make fun of the people that do that. Um, but there's a very serious uh, nature to which Deuteronomy was written, for which it was written. And so this morning, uh, we're going to begin with that, and, uh, well, we'll get there. Uh, but let me read first the passage. It's Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 1 to 25. This is God's word. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies, and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, 
by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord had promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves, Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord, our God. For our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord, our God, as he has commanded us. That's the word of God for you. Uh, that's a long passage, I know, but uh, for some of us, let's be honest, that's probably most of the Bible we've read this week. Uh, and so it's good to read the scriptures sometimes, uh, long pieces of the scriptures. Um, as I said before, what we're going to do in Deuteronomy is kind of flesh out the Ten Commandments. An easy way to think about the Ten Commandments is that they mirror Jesus' teaching on the two greatest commandments on which hang all the law and the prophets. He said the first great, first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll see that if you look at the Ten Commandments, really, from about one to four is the first great commandment and five to ten is the second great commandment now just to give you some background here the word deuteronomy it means second law why did the law need to be given a second time well for one the people who are listening to moses give these sermons that's what the book of deuteronomy is a series of sermons most scholars think they were given on the plains of moab as israel's kind of looking down see the promised land so it's before they had entered the promised land but he's having to give the law a second time because this is the second generation this is the generation born in the wilderness these were not people who had walked out of egypt who had crossed the red sea who had seen pharaoh's armies uh driven into the sea behind them uh and largely because their parents had died the first generation, uh, because they had not trusted God, because they had tested the Lord in the wilderness, did not end up uh, crossing over. And in fact, we can be fairly confident someone put together these sermons for the nation of Israel after they had conquered the land. So uh, most scholars think that Moses didn't necessarily himself put Deuteronomy together. Someone else did for the purpose of saying to the nation of Israel after they had crossed over. This is the way you are to live. This is God's law in light of what he has done for you and in, li in light of what he's given you. Now, uh, there's lots of warnings throughout Deuteronomy. You, you, you heard probably uh, three or four just in this chapter. Uh, and I want to begin with a warning. We're going to be looking at God's commands through the lens of the gospel every week. Okay. But nonetheless, they are God's commands. And so he commands that we follow them. Uh, we are aiming, therefore, for 100% obedience. Not 99, not 50, but 100%. Jesus said things like, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
He also said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so what you're going to see, uh, at least I think, I, I speak for this week, uh, and I think I can speak for Drew. We've had enough conversations about this. You're going to see us kind of working through four points rather than three. Typically how we end is we end with the gospel. There's a problem or there's a there's a way we've been uh, given to live. There's some sort of design. Sin comes in, has ruined that design. We take a look at how sin gets in the way of that design. And then the third point's usually something like, where do we get the power to live like this? Yes, everybody with me? Yes, okay. If you've been here at all, you've probably seen this pattern. Some of you think, do they have anything else they can say? Because they say the same thing every week. No, we can't. Uh, but in this series, you're going to see us go to four points. Because we're going to talk about the gospel in point three, but then we're going to direct us toward obedience, really. The obedience is born out of faith, hence the title of the fourth point there, uh, in light of the gospel. So I just wanted to, to make you aware of that as we proceed forward. So first, let's look then at the first point. We were designed for love. We were designed for obedience. Uh, Israel existed because of the God who made them, because of the God who brought them out of Egypt. The God who promised an inheritance to their forefathers, which was a land where his presence would rest, a land where his smile would rest. And so Israel's existence is owed to grace. They would not have existed. They would not have received this land unless God gave it to them, unless God called them out of Egypt, unless God brought them out of Egypt. And so the basis for everything he's going to tell them, the basis for really the whole book, and you see it at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, we read it in the call uh, to worship, is God's redeeming act on their behalf to rescue them from Egypt. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. What in the world does that mean? Well, I can't get exactly what it means, but I can tell you it does mean at least this, that God is not defined. He defines. He's not created. He creates. There's only one of him. So you can't duplicate him. He can't be modified or twisted or tweaked or or, or tinkered with. We like to do that, right, with everything, really. But you can't do that with God. And so Moses is very clear This God, the God who's giving us this law, the God who rescued us, is the one true, only, unique, most powerful God. Now, look at verses 5 to 9. I want to talk about how obedience and love are related. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. To love God is to obey God. So really, when the Bible talks about obedience and love, You shall love the Lord your God. You could really insert the word, you shall obey the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the same thing. Uh, Notice that Moses commands the people to love the Lord your God. He, He commands them. So it can't be an emotion. Sometimes you feel like doing it, sometimes you don't. He commands it. It's a deliberate movement of our heart toward a certain pattern of behavior. It's calling us to live in a certain way. In fact, some nine times throughout the book of Deuteronomy, as you read through it, and I would encourage you to do that in the, in the coming uh, 11 or 12 weeks, he calls Israel to love God over nine times. 
It's a regular pattern. Now, what's it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and might? Well, your heart is the place that your character is formed. It's what shapes your emotions. It's the seat of your will. It's what governs your morality. Your soul, your your nefesh in Hebrew, isn't that a great word? Everybody say that with me. Nefesh. Nefesh, yes. If you were asleep, now you're awake. Your soul is what makes you unique. It is what it is your personal characteristics that makes you you, okay? That's your soul. Your might. Literally, the Hebrew says your very muchness. Greatly. Or with all your possessions, in fact, some uh, some commentators have said. One commentator puts it like this. Moses says, love the Lord your God with total commitment, with your total self, to total excess. Now, verses 6 to 9 are really a fleshing out of exactly what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. So Moses calls us to do this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And this is what it's going to look like. First, he says they are to be on your heart. The law of God is not simply something you conform to keep out of duty. It was something that Israel was called to place on their heart to internalize so that it did affect their behavior, so that their character was formed as a result of putting the law on their heart. It, it, it was it was to be seared onto them, so to speak. But not only that, a love for God's commands and laws must transform your life. And here's where uh, it gets really nitty gritty. Moses covers every possible arena for us as individuals. He says, talk about them in your home, your private life, on the way that is your public life or in your job or in your business. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. That is, they're affecting what's between your eyes back here, your head, your thinking. The commands of God should be transforming your thinking. They shall be a sign on your hand. That is, that the hand was a, was a symbol of action, was a symbol of, 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 of your, your, your movement toward other people. The commands of God must be transforming your actions when you lie down, when you get up, every stinking moment of your life. The challenge of this passage is this, and I want you to hear this this uh, question because this week it really uh, hit me. How does who God is, because this is what Moses is getting at, how does who God is and what God says affect every nook and cranny of my life? You know what nooks and crannies are? The nooks and crannies of, of this room are the places that you can't see. They're the places they probably haven't cleaned since they built it. But that is what Moses is getting at. And the frightening part is that if we really begin to do that, which we want to do in this series, by the way, that's our goal. If we really begin to expose every nook and cranny of our lives to who God is and what God has said, we might find that there are many nooks and crannies where who he is and what he said have not penetrated. And that's frightening. But that's how pervasive the commands of God, the rules that God has set out are. But there's also a corporate aspect. A love for God's commands and laws must transform his people. As Drew mentioned earlier, you can't be holy. In the, in the context of the Bible, you can't be holy by yourself. You're holy in a group of people. 
And together we are called to seek out how we might learn to love God. Remember the, the opening verses of verse, or excuse me, the opening words, rather, of verse 4. Hear, O Israel. It's not as though he preached this sermon to each individual privately, but he preached it to the community as a whole. So parents, teaching your children to love God and his commands will help you work them out, right? Because you're having to apply them to your kids' lives. If you're not teaching them to your children, that's going to be one less opportunity for you to figure out how the commands of God fit in, how they get worked out in your life. Also, he tells us to to talk of them. Now, this is a hard one for somebody like me. I'd much rather listen to a sermon by someone smarter and wiser than me about how to apply the commands of God to my life. But what am I doing when I'm listening to that sermon? Nine times out of ten, it's just me and the person who's speaking. And I get to sit there in awe and rapture and wonder at what they're saying. Oh, this is so good. Oh, this is wonderful. Great. Now, what am I doing? Well, I'm not talking about that to anybody else. I might talk to Drew about it. But then again, I may want to keep it from him too. Oh, this is too good. I can't, I can't let anybody else in on this. Moses doesn't say that, though. He doesn't say, listen to other people talk to you about the commands of God. He says, talk of them all the time. You, all of you. And as you do that, you will learn how to love and obey his commands. This describes the way every human being is designed to live. We were made to love and obey God because we were created by him. And so much can get in the way of that. So much can capture our hearts and steer us away from what we were made for. And so that brings us to the second point, fullness that will ultimately lead to forgetfulness. In verses 10, really through about 19, Moses gives Israel three warnings Because it's easy to forget, right? I mean, it's easy to forget the commands of God, but why do we forget? Well, we're full. But full of what? Uh, James, this quote's going to be up there. It's on that one slide. Listen to this quote from a guy named John Piper. He's a pastor in Minnesota. Amazing quote. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land or a yoke of oxen or a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable that's scary Moses knew how tempting it would be for Israel once they entered the land and started to enjoy its abundance and the affluence that came with it he knew they would get full and it would lead them to forget remember Satan's first temptation for Jesus if you are hungry turn these stones into bread fullness due to enjoying what you didn't work for is one thing but fullness enjoyed because of how hard you have worked is quite another right? We, we, we almost feel entitled to that fullness. Well, I've worked for this, so doggone it, I deserve it. Satan wanted Jesus to forget his father. He wanted Jesus to move away from dependency and his need towards self-sufficiency. He wanted him to get full so that he would forget. Now, our fullness can lead to three things, and there's three things you see here. 
First, our fullness can lead to forgetting God because of prosperity, material prosperity. Note, Moses says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, implying that as you become more prosperous, you begin to serve your stuff, right? You no longer begin to serve or you're you're no longer stuck on serving the God who has rescued you. You serve your stuff. Our fullness can also lead to abandoning God due to cultural idolatry. It's so tempting for us, and it was tempting for Israel, to wander off and prostitute ourselves to the idolatries of our culture. Because we will play by the world's rules if it means we can gain, oftentimes, without even thinking. The rules of the world begin to to kind of take over, and the cost doesn't matter. But also our fullness can lead to doubting God in times of hardship, and need and this might be the most dangerous one because it's often the most subtle listen to the comment on verse 15 uh on uh, by uh, by one scholar I believe it's verse 15 just kidding it's verse 16 this verse singles out one event the murmuring at massa where there was a shortage of drinking water the people's reaction is described as testing the lord okay the hebrew word does not mean to tempt someone by trying to entice them to do what is wrong, but rather to test or prove whether someone will really do what they say. This is exactly the people's challenge at Masa. This is what the people of Israel were saying at Masa. It's why what it's why God got so angry. Because they're really saying, can this God do what he promised? Is he competent to lead us? We don't really think so. Moses, get some water for us. Because we're not really sure this God can do what he says he can do. We're not sure this God's cracked uh, everything he's cracked up to be. And when hardship and times of need come, our prior experience of fullness can lead us to arrogantly demand that God behave in a certain way. That he meet our needs. Because he's met them in the past, so why aren't you meeting them now? And it reveals how short our memory of who God is and what he has done It reveals a shallow faith that's only in it for my desires to be met. So again, remember Jesus' temptation. Satan encourages him to throw himself off the temple roof. Why? So that he can prove God's promise to protect him. Satan even quotes the Bible. Right? What does Jesus say? Deuteronomy 6.16, actually. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Because for Jesus, the approval and voice of his father defined him. So he has no need to test God's protection. He knows he's protected. He knows God is on his side. And Israel, on the other hand, had forgotten all of God's mighty acts in the Exodus. And so they challenged his provision. And ultimately, the first generation died. The second generation went into the land. They conquered it. But what happened? You can't escape from the reality of forgetfulness and the consequences that Moses consistently lays out before the people. Listen, Deuteronomy 4:25 and 26. If you act corruptly, you will soon utterly perish from the land. You will be utterly destroyed. Deuteronomy 6:15. We read it earlier. The Lord is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And now listen, listen. Those were not empty threats. 
What follows the book of Deuteronomy is the Old Testament's telling of Israel's rebellion and eventual exile from the land. You know they went in and they conquered it. Everything was hunky-dory. What does Judges 1 say? Now a generation rose up who did not know the mighty acts of God, who did not remember what God had done. And what ends up happening? The next line is, everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And the rest of the Old Testament is this constant sort of shift of Israel. Faithfulness. Oh, we forgot the law. God, please save us. He saves us. Oh, we get complacent and forget. We get full. We get uh, wealthy. We start oppressing people. Oh, God, please forgive us. And they're back. And it's just this pendulum swing back and forth. And ultimately, the prophets come and the prophets say, you're going to get kicked out and it's going to be bad. And if you know anything about the two uh, exiles, they were nasty. Because you had the Assyrians come in and ransack Samaria and take the northern kingdom. And then you had the Babylonians come in and take the southern kingdom. And they didn't just say, okay, you come with us, please. If you know anything about ancient history, these were nasty kingdoms. They enslaved Israel. They came in and murdered people who would not turn around. They stuck, uh, they stuck hooks in the noses of the people they would capture and drug them back to their land. What was exile for the people of God? Exile was leaving the land, getting banished out of the land, which for Israel represented the smile of God. It represented the presence of God. That's a huge deal. That's why the exile was such a huge deal. That's why the prophets thought it, this, this is going to be bad. And it was. But the good news for us is that Jesus was cast out and made an exile because of our disobedience. He was kicked out of the land, so to speak, the place of God's presence that we might be brought into his presence and have access to the Father. And the only hope we have in the face of forgetting God and all that leads to uh, all that that leads to is to remember the story of the gospel and to remember it. We've got to be hearing it and telling it to ourselves. Look at verse 20. It's my favorite part of the whole chapter. Look at verse 20. Eventually, Moses says, if you're obeying the commands of God, your children are going to ask why mom and dad, why do you obey the commands of God? What's the meaning of these rules that God has given us? Verse 20. When your son says, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Most of us, when our children ask us, why do I need to obey? What do we do? We jump to verse 24. Look at verse 24. The Lord commanded us to do all the statutes. So when our children say, why, why should we obey? We say, because I told you to. Or if we want to play the God card, which I like to do, God says you must honor your father and your mother. Ellie, I like that one, don't I? Yes, I use that one a lot. Why? Because I want to guilt her into obedience, doggone it. You're not obeying me? Well, God says obey. And you want to argue with him? You take it up with him. But what does Moses say? This is so beautiful. It's so brilliant. He doesn't jump to verse 24. There's verses 21, 22, and 23 in the middle. 
The starting point of why we obey is not because God commanded us to. The starting point is this. Moses says, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there so that he might bring us in to this land that he swore to our fathers. The story of Israel, the story of Israel's gospel. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, they were enslaved in Egypt. God brought the plagues as judgment against evil. And Israel gets preserved because of what? Because they smeared blood of the, lamb, the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. And the angel of death passed over every house that had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And so our new motivation for obedience, as the, the point declares there, gospel remembering, the answer to the question of why we obey of our motivation for obedience is remembering the gospel. And that's so powerful and so needed. The gospel rescue was the basis for the law. The Lord rescued Israel so that they could obey and serve him. Now, listen, the blood of the lamb was smeared on the doorposts so that God's commands might be put on the doorposts. It was the blood of the lamb first, then the commands of God. So the gospel always comes before the law. It did in the Old Testament. It does in the New Testament. And this is why I chose Ephesians 2. It's why our assurance of pardon is so significant. It's our story. Parents, when your children today ask you, why do you obey the commands of God? Then you read them Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 or 10. You read that to them or you recite it to them. You don't say because God commands us to. I guess I got to obey. Okay. What does that produce in the heart? Joy? Do you see joy on this face? No. And we all know how prone to joy I am. Yeah. But that's part of the reason I need to remember the Gospels. I need to preach it to myself. So look at the fourth point as we conclude. It comes full circle. Because of the Gospel, I can put the commands of God on my doorposts. Because of Jesus, who, by the way, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can pursue obedience because of my faith that God is for me, that he loves me for crying out loud. He died for me. What more do I need to prove his love? And so obedience for the Christian is birthed out of remembering the gospel as it seeps into every nook and cranny of our lives. My obeying of God comes out of my faith that God is good and his love endures forever. That's why I'm calling it. That's why we call it the obedience of faith. It's the obedience that springs out of faith. It's why the sermon title is Grace Born Obedience, because our obedience comes out of the grace that we've received. And let me encourage you quickly, a commercial. This is why community Bible reading is so essential. Take advantage of it, because it gives you an opportunity to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Now, if you bucket the idea of obedience... Come on, I thought this Christian thing was all about grace, right? Then maybe you've never experienced the grace of God in Jesus. Because one thing's for sure, the scriptures are very clear. If you have, then the story of the gospel is the basis for your obedience. It propels you 
toward obedience. We just sang this earlier. Don't let this don't don't escape. This. Don't leave here without this. love. So amazing. So divine asks for my all requests that I give my all. Pleads that I give my all. Ask me to consider giving my all. No love. So amazing demands my soul, my life, everything. And that is the difference that grace makes. I obey out of love and gratitude, rather out of fear, rather than out of fear and compulsion. The first is Christianity. The second is religion. But that's also why we can't stop with just confessing our sin and rejoicing in the gospel. We are called to holiness. We are called to conform our lives to the commands and statutes and rules that God has set out for our good. But we can only do that out of a faith and a trust that God has acted in history to save us. And now through us and through our obedience, he's changing the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we stand in awe of the gospel, of the story of rescue. And we pray that as we come to meditate more and more on your commands, on your statutes, on your rules, that that gospel, that that good news, that that amazing story of rescue would be the foundation that we might be drawn to remember your gospel every day, that we might be drawn to remember what you have done. And so now as we come to take communion, Would you remind us, might you draw us in, Lord Jesus, to remember your body broken and your blood shed. And because of those, because of your blood shed and your body broken, we have been rescued. We have been given new hearts and nothing will ever be the same. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.